Chapter 3. The Hypostasis Soul and Its Relation to Individual Souls As far as souls are concerned, we have only considered the hypostasis soul so far. However, there are also individual souls, just as there are individual intellects. In the present chapter, I wish to consider the relation of the hypostasis soul to individual souls. This relation as, uh, is, as we shall see, rather complicated. Before starting to address it, however, let me make three preliminary remarks. Firstly, in this chapter, when I speak of individual souls, I am referring only to individual rational souls, that is, souls whose nature it is to think. Non-rational souls will be dealt with in chapter 8. Secondly, we know that according to Plotinus, there are different types of individual rational soul. There are divine souls, such as the world soul, the, world of the, the souls of the stars, and the soul of the earth, and there are human souls. The differences between different types of individual rational soul do not play any role in the problem discussed in this chapter. Thus, the expression individual soul does not refer to members of any type of individual rational soul in particular, but applies to all individual rational souls equally. Thirdly, individual rational souls also possess functions that are not covered by what I am going to discuss in this chapter. I shall deal with these functions in later chapters. This chapter consists of three sections. In the first section, the relation of the hypostasis soul to individual souls will be considered in a rather formal way. I shall discuss this in the context of a class of elements that share a formal feature with the soul, namely the feature that they are one and many. The expression one and many shall be understood here in a specific sense. Furthermore, I shall compare the soul with two other members of this class, namely with the intellect and with genera. We shall see that intellect and soul are wholes of the same type. In the second section, I shall give content to the formal discussion of the first part with a view to the intellect and its relation to individual intellects. This discussion will also explain how individual intellects get individuated. In the final section, I shall do the same with the soul, and consider the relation of the soul to individual souls, and how the latter get individuated. This discussion will be based on the, uh, that of section 2. Being one and many. We find in various passages of the Enneads the claim that the soul is both one and many. The soul is not the only thing that Plotinus considers to be one and many. There is a class of such things. At first sight, it is clear that the things that are one and many must be distinguished from two other types of things. On the one hand, things belonging to this class are not simpliciter, one. According to Plotinus, only the first and highest hypostasis, the one, is simpliciter, one. On the other hand, neither are they pure multiplicities. They possess more unity than a mere collection of things, such as a heap. Clearly, between the two extreme cases of the one and a heap, one can think of many things with various degrees of unity. And one might think that all these things might be called one and many in some sense. In order to explain the sense which Plotinus has in mind by calling the soul, just as a number of other things, one and many, it is helpful, I think, to introduce another pair of notions, namely the notions of whole and part. The introduction of this pair of notions to characterize the relation of soul to individual souls is justified because Plotinus explicitly calls the soul a whole and the individual souls its parts. Intellect and genus are also called 
wholes whose parts are individual intellects and species respectively. As we shall see, all three, intellect, soul, and genus, are wholes of the same type. There are at least two types of whole one might wish to distinguish, as we can learn from a passage in Plato's Theotetus. In their discussion of the relation of letters, for instance the letters S and O, to a syllable, for instance the syllable SO, Socrates and Theotetus consider the following possibility. Quote, for perhaps one must take a syllable to be not the letters, but some one thing which has come into being out of the letters, possessing itself one form of itself, and being different from the letters. End quote. Accordingly, Socrates suggests distinguishing two kinds of whole, namely holes that are like the syllable, as considered in the above example, and holes that are no more than the sum of their parts. In an interesting passage in the Parmenides, which bears many verbal correspondences to the passage in the Theotetus, Plato has Parmenides claim, quote, but the whole must be one out of many, and the parts will be parts of this, for each part will not be the part of the many, but of the whole, end quote. And, quote, hence the part is not part of the many, or of the sum, but of one form and of one thing which we call whole, which has come into being from the sum as a perfect one. End quote. Also in this passage, Plato distinguishes a whole that is not just the sum of its parts from a whole that is just the sum of its parts. It seems even to be implied in this passage that only the former whole is a whole, strictly speaking. For the latter, the sum, does not, strictly speaking, have parts. Although Plato in neither passage explicitly says so, it can easily be seen that the whole of the first type might be called a whole that is one and many. It is neither simpliciter one, as Plato makes clear in the Parmenides passage, nor is it only many, which, if it were, would make it the other type of whole, the sum. Thus, the type of whole which Plato seems to consider the true whole might seem to be only, not only a one that is constituted by many, but also a one that is not only one, but one and many. One might wonder whether there are wholes of this type, and one might have the view that all wholes are no more than the sums of their parts. Whether there are wholes of this type had already been discussed in the old academy. While the prevalent view seems to have been that there are such wholes, Xenocrates disagreed. A consideration of Xenocrates' position is helpful for our discussion. I believe, not only because it shows us what was seen to be implied by the view that there are things that are one and many. It is also helpful because it shows how the notions of one and many, whole and part, and, as we will shortly see, also of genus and species, are related. Xenocrates seems to have been worried by the claim that there are things that are one and many, because he thought that this would mean pred uh, predicating contradictory predicates, namely one and many, of the same thing, thus violating the law of non-contradiction. Xenocrates' view is nicely summarized in a fragment of Alexander of Aphrodisias, preserved by Simplicius, that runs as follows. Quote, Xenocrates of Chalcedon gave this argument concerning bisection, holding that the divisible sum is many, for the part is different from the whole, and that the same cannot at the same time be one and many, because contradictory items cannot be true together. For in this way he believed to find the nature of the one and to avoid contradiction, namely because the divisible is not one, but many." End quote. According to this fragment, Xenocrates wished uh, to do away with holes, which, according to Plato, are true holes, that is, holes that are distinct from the sum of their parts. For Xenocrates, however, holes are not one, but only many, that is, they are only sums. Moreover, he believed, according to this fragment, 
that what is divisible is not one. Only indivisible things are one. Divisible things being merely the sum of a certain number of things that are either themselves sums or indivisible things. Only these indivisible things are one. Xenocrates uses the expression atomos that I rendered as indivisible, and we might thus call Xenocrates' view a version of atomism, claiming that the primary and basic entities are indivisible, and that everything else is in some way or other a combination of these basic atomic entities. On the basis of this principle, Xenocrates claims, for example, that there are even indivisible lines, which are the principles of all lines in the sense that all divisible lines are con constituted by indivisible lines. He also seems to have defended the view that there are indivisible planes and indivisible geometrical solids. Xenocrates' idea of postulating basic geometrical entities might have been due to Plato's Timaeus, where minimal triangles are postulated as basic entities for the constitution of the sensible world. One context in which Xenocrates' view was of prime importance is that of a theory of genera and species, a topic hotly debated in the Old Academy. Xenocrates believed, thereby presumably opposing the dominant strand in the Old Academy, that species are ontologically prior to genera. He compared genera to wholes and species to parts, and claimed that genera are nothing but the sums of their species, giving ontological priority to species. There is a fragment, preserved only in Arabic, which claims precisely this. Here, the fragment is in full. Quote, Alexander says, Xenocrates says, if the relation between a species and a genus is like the relation between a part and a whole, and if a part is anterior and prior to the whole in virtue of natural priority, for if a part is sublated, the whole is sublated, this in view of the fact that no whole will remain if one of its parts is lacking, whereas a part will not be necessarily sublated if its whole is sublated, it being possible that certain parts of a whole be annulated where others remain. A species is likewise indubitably prior to the genus. End quote. We find the discussion of whether genera or species are prior also in Aristotle. The two opposite views together from, uh, form an aporia, discussed in Metaphysics B3, the seventh aporia. In the sixth aporia, Aristotle asks whether the elements of something are its principles, as the pre-Socratics claimed, or rather the genera, genus taken in a wide sense, including uh, species, of it. In the seventh aporia, he goes on the assumption that genera, in a broad sense, are the principles of things. He then asks whether the highest genera, or the lowest genera, i.e. the lowest species, are most, uh, are most properly principles. Quote, for this is controversial, end quote. He refers to the controversy between Xenocrates and the dominant Platonist view in the Old Academy. What is the view that Xenocrates opposes? Clearly, it is the view that the genus is ontologically prior to its species, and not, as Xenocrates would have it, only the sum of its species. Using a Platonist reason to support this view, Aristotle mentions the claim that the more general, catholo, is more a principle than that which is less general. If this claim holds true, Aristotle states, the highest genera are the highest principles. The prevalent view in the Old Academy, as ref uh, referred to by Aristotle, goes beyond what we have found in Plato's Theatetus and Parmenides. For according to both passages from Plato's dialogues considered above, the true whole, although being something new and distinct from the sum of its parts, is constituted by its parts. The prevalent Platonist view, however, the view that Xenocrates opposes, goes beyond this in stating that the whole is the principle of its parts.
Why a Platonist might be inclined to hold this view can perhaps be seen from two basic Platonist assumptions. The first finds expression in the Platonist view of the relation of forms to individuals. Platonists famously believed that there are forms such as the form human being, and that the things that are human beings in the sensible world are only so by virtue of their participation in the form human being. In this sense, the form human being is the principle of human beings, and thus the thing that is more general, for instance, the form human being, is the principle of the less general for instance, the individual human beings. Now, a Platonist might either think that this relation only holds true between forms and individuals participating in these forms, or he might go beyond this to claim in addition that similar relations exist between forms. Thus, he might think that some forms are more general than others, and that more general forms are principles of less general forms. The reason why he might think this is due to the second basic Platonist assumption, which is connected with Plato's discovery of diaresis, as exemplified in detail at the beginning of the Sophist. In terms of genera and species, diaresis can be described as follows. Take a genus and divide it, at its joints, into subgenera. Continue until you reach the lowest genera, i.e. species. These lowest genera, or species, are indivisible, atomoi. Suppose we possess a genus and we have correctly divided it into species. As a result, we possess a hierarchically ordered tree of genera and species. The method of diaresis in itself does not imply any ontological commitment but it can be understood ontologically. Platonists who believe that genera and species are real entities might well understand diaresis ontologically and not only as a conceptual division. Understood in this way, it gives rise to the question asked in Aristotle's seventh aporia, are the genera or the species ontologically prior? If you think that the genera are ontologically prior, then the following question arises. How is it possible to deduce a species from a genus? Before providing the sketch of an answer to this question, note that the contrary claim, the claim that a species is not already in some way present in the genus, leaves it open as to how the species can be a species of a genus, if we ask the question not logically but ontologically. Thus, the proponent of the opposing view also needs to provide an explanation. Let us now see how a defender of the view that gives priority to the genus might answer this question. He might say that the species is in some way already present in the genus. Indeed, the metaphor of the Phaedrus, which compares diaresis with a cutting at the joints, suggests such a solution. But if so, we need an explanation for how the species is thought to already be in the genus. Such an explanation can be found, I suggest, when we look at an analog in Sextus's discussion of the fourth interpretation of the conditional. At Outlines of Pyrrhonism 2, 112, Sextus refers to those who judge by emphasis. These unknown interpreters claimed that a true conditional is one whose consequent is potentially included in the antecedent. In this way, they wished to explain how it is possible for a consequent to follow from an antecedent. Hence, according to their view, the claim if P, then Q, is true if and only if Q is potentially included in P. If we understand emphasis as indication, then the proponents of this view perhaps meant that what is expressed by Q in the conditional if P, then Q, must be part of the meaning of P. 
The claim that Q is potentially included in P suggests that Q, although being implicitly included in P, is not explicitly expressed in P. We can now see how this idea can be applied to the relation of genus and species as described above. I submit that we can use it even though our discussion is about the relation of genus and species, rather than about a relation between propositions or statements. What I mean can be illustrated by the following example. Human being is a species of animal if and only if what is designated by human being is potentially included in what is designated by animal. The term potentially is being understood in the way suggested above. Accordingly, what is expressed by human being is implicitly part of what is expressed by animal. Moreover, the meanings of the terms animal and human being must be reified. The view that the genus is the principle of the species and not Xenocrates' view carried the day among Platonists. We can find this in later Platonism, not least in Plotinus. At Ennead 3.7, chapter 4, lines 9 through 11, he claims, quote, That which is truly a whole has not been gathered together out of its parts, but it has generated its parts itself, so that it also in this way truly is a whole, end quote. This passage shows that Plotinus follows what I have called the prevalent Platonist view in the Academy by claiming that the whole is prior to its parts, and that it is the principle of its parts. Plotinus also holds this view in relation to genus and species, claiming that the genus produces its species, Aeneid 6.2, chapter 19. Thus, he also considers the genus to be the principle of the species, and not the other way around. These considerations have paved the way for our discussion of the relation between the hypostasis soul to individual souls, and the hypostasis intellect to individual intellects. Plotinus uses the traditional view of the relation of genus to species, and it extends it to these further entities, which can clearly be seen from the following passage at Aeneid 4.8, chapter 3, lines 6 through 16. Quote, now, since the whole intellect exists in the intelligible realm, being a whole and all, which we call the intelligible universe, and since there are also the intellectual powers contained in it, and the individual intellects, for the intellect is not only one, but one and many, there had also to be many souls, and one soul, and the many different souls stemming from the one soul, like the species from one genus, some better, others worse, some more intelligent, others actually less so. For there, are, uh, for there in the intellect, there is on the one hand the intellect potentially containing the others like a great living being, and on the other the individual intellects, each being actually what the intellect contains potentially." End quote. Plotinus clearly takes for granted the understanding of the relation of genus and species we have discussed and explains on this basis the relation of the intellect to individual intellects and of the soul to individual souls. Just as the genus is one and many, so are the intellect and the soul. This explains, according to this passage, why they are wholes. Moreover, like the genus, they are wholes that are prior to their parts. They are even the principles of their parts. Individual souls stem from the soul, just like species stem from their genus. Although Plotinus does not explicitly say so in this passage, it is fair to assume that, by analogy, individual intellects are thought to stem from the intellect. Thus we find the traditional Platonist view at work, here extended, however, to the soul and to the intellect. These considerations allow us to uh, now these considerations allow us now to rule out two misconceptions of the relationship of soul and intellect to their respective parts 
that can sometimes be found in the secondary literature. The hypostases are not sums of their parts. Neither the soul nor the intellect are just the sum of all individual souls or intellects, respectively. Moreover, neither the hypostasis intellect nor the hypostasis soul is an abstraction from their respective individuals. Quite the contrary, both intellect and soul are beings which possess more reality than their corresponding parts, as both hypostases are the principles of their parts. The fact that the hypostases are the principles of their parts implies that the parts are ontologically dependent on them, while they are not ontologically dependent on their parts. These claims become clearer, I hope, as soon as we turn to giving content to them, and begin to see how individual souls and how individual intellects are parts of their respective hypostasis. We will also see that the relation of whole and part is more complicated than the discussion so far has revealed. So far, we have not even discussed all aspects of the relation of whole and part that Plotinus postulates in the passage quoted above. For in this passage, Plotinus claims that the parts are potentially contained in the whole, and that each part is actually what the whole potentially, con potentially contains. We will also have to consider the further claim, not expressed in the passage above, that the whole is as a whole in each of its parts. The hypostasis intellect, individual intellects, and their individuation. In this section, I wish to consider the relation of the hypostasis intellect to its individuals, and I shall try to account for all the claims made above. The relation of the of hypostasis soul to individual souls as we will see in the next section, works in the same way. The discussion in the next section will thus presuppose what is argued in this section. However, let us first discuss a simile that Plotinus uses to explain the whole part relation of both the intellect to individual intellects and the soul to individual souls. Aeneid 4.9, chapter 5, line 15. Plotinus uses a science as an example, claiming in Aeneid 4.9, chapter 5, line 15, quote, And perhaps the whole science and the part is said in this way. There, in the whole science, all parts are, in a way, actually all together. Each part that you wish to choose is ready to hand. But in the part is what is ready to hand, given um, signification by approaching in some way the whole. For one must not think that it is isolated from the other theorems. If it is scientific, then it possesses potentially also all others. Intuitively, it is perhaps clear that a science is a whole, in some way con uh, consisting of parts, because the content of a science is spelled out in terms of many theorems that are logically connected with one another. Thus it would make sense to understand a science as a whole, and its theorems as its parts. Importantly, however, a science is not only a set of theorems. Were it, were it only a set of theorems, the science would be a whole that was posterior to its parts. It would be nothing other than the sum of its parts, and thus of the type that Plato in the Theotetus distinguished from the whole that is the uh, distinct from its parts. Thus, according to Plotinus, the relation of science as a whole to its theorems must be more complicated. Let us further consider a part of science, namely a theorem. Each theorem is essentially a theorem of the science whose part it is. Take any theorem of geometry. It can only be understood as a part of geometry. We can only understand it if we understand how it relates to the theorems it is deduced from. In this way, the theorems it is deduced from are essential to it. But not only are the theorems it is deduced from essential to each theorem, there are also theorems that in turn get deduced from this theorem. They also are essential to the theorem. For if 
a theorem Q, which can be deduced from uh, or by means of a theorem P, were different, P itself would also be a different theorem. Recall the fourth interpretation of the conditional in Sextus. According to this interpretation, if P then Q is true if and only if P potentially contains Q. In this sense, a theorem that gets deduced from another theorem, or set of theorems, is already in some way part of the theorem, or theorems, it gets deduced from. Note, however, that it also only uh, it is also only the theorem it is by being deduced from the theorems that contain it. A scientific theorem is only what it is by virtue of these other theorems of the same science. However, a theorem not only hinges upon the theorems that it is deduced from and that get deduced from it. Since these other theorems are, again, essentially connected with further theorems, it also hinges upon them. In fact, since all theorems of a science are directly or indirectly essential, uh, essentially related to all other theorems, each theorem is what it is by virtue of making up the science together with all other theorems. In this sense, all other theorems of the same science are essential to each theorem. This is expressed by Plotinus's claim in the quotation above that a theorem contains all other theorems of the same science, potentially. A theorem cannot be isolated from any other theorem of the same science. So much for the part. An even more puzzling claim of the above quotation concerns the whole. Plotinus states that all parts are actually together, in the whole. Moreover, each part is ready to hand in the whole. In order to understand this, we have to remind ourselves of the claim that the whole is prior to its parts, and that it is the principle of its parts. In our discussion of genus and species in the context of platonic diaresis, I claimed that in some way the species uh, must already exist in the uh, genus if the genus is ontologically prior to the species in the relevant sense. By analogy, each theorem must exist already in the whole science. Each that you wish to choose is there ready to hand, as Plotinus puts it. What all theorems together actually are, as opposed to potentially, does not differ in content from what the whole science is. The difference between a theorem and its science consists in the fact that each theorem is not actually the whole science, but only a part. The theorem, unlike the science, contains the rest of the science only potentially. This means that each theorem is dependent on the whole science for its being what it is. This claim, I think, seems plausible for deductive sciences. But if we wish to establish a relation of ontological priority between the science and its theorems, the science as a whole must also be independent in some way of the theorems as far as its being what it is is concerned. Moreover, Plotinus makes the strong claim that the science, unlike the theorem, actually contains all theorems. But if this is the case, how can the science be ontologically prior to its theorems? In order to be entitled to postulate ontological priority here, we will have to distinguish the theorems as being contained in the whole science from the theorems as being posterior parts of the whole science. So far, I have only been talking about theorems constituting a science as if a science only consisted of theorems. Yet we know that ancient axiomatic sciences also contained, uh, consisted of axioms, and perhaps definitions and postulates. I suggest that Plotinus considered the whole science, prior to its parts, as identical with the axioms of the science. This allows us to claim that all theorems of a science are indeed both in the whole science and posterior to the whole science. They are in the whole science without being articulated. Thus, each theorem is already present in the axioms from which it is ultimately deduced. The whole sum of 
appropriately logically related, theorems of a science is the articulation of the whole science without adding anything new to the science. Thus, the content of the whole science is actually already there in the axioms. It is just the case that no theorem is already articulated, as such, in the whole science that is prior to the theorems. We can conclude, therefore, that the science as a whole actually contains all its parts, and, at the same time, is prior to its parts. This can be explained by saying that all theorems are in the whole science, i.e. in the axioms, but not as articulated theorems. The science as a whole is in each of its parts, and each part, i.e. each theorem, can be deduced from it. The particular deduction of a theorem makes each theorem the individual theorem that it is. Moreover, each theorem potentially contains, i.e. is essentially dependent on, all other theorems of the same science. Let us turn to the intellect as a whole, and to the individual intellects as it, its parts. First, however, a preliminary remark. In chapter 2, we have seen that the intellect primarily consists of the five highest genera of Plato's sophist. For the following discussion, I shall consider only these five genera as parts of the intellect, even though there are more individual intellects that are parts of the intellect than the five, high, uh, five genera alone. To make things easier, however, I shall ignore them in the present context. We can safely do this because what applies to the five highest genera will also apply to the other individual intellects. Let us first consider the hypostasis intellect, which, as I argued in chapter 2, is nothing other than the hypostasis of intellectual contemplation, noen, contemplating the world of forms. When saying that the intellect contemplates the world of forms, I mean this in the sense that the world of forms constitutes the content of the intellect's contemplation. In contemplating the world of forms, the intellect contemplates it as a whole. This means that it does not focus on any part of it, on any form in particular. The intellect does not think, for example, about sameness in particular. We also know from the last chapter that the intellect is identical not only with its activity, but also with what it contemplates, namely with the world of forms, which means that the intellect, in contemplating the world of forms, uh, contemplates itself. The fact that the intellect does not focus on any form in particular helps to explain the claim made in the last chapter that the intellect is nothing but intellectual thinking. Thinking taken in itself does not focus on anything in particular. Note that the claim that the intellect does not think about anything in particular does not imply that the thinking of the intellect has no content. The latter claim is certainly false on Plotinian terms, for, crucially, the intellect contemplates reality, osia, and is identical with it. The intellect as a hypostasis is distinct from any individual intellect, and we are now in a position to see how individual intellects are different from their hypostasis, but also how they get individuated. While the hypostasis intellect does not focus on anything in particular, individual intellects do. Each individual intellect thinks about something or other in particular, and this is precisely what makes an individual intellect an individual. Now, all individual intellects, of course, think about the world of forms, but it is important to note that each individual intellect focuses on one particular aspect of the world of forms, of true reality, and this makes it the individual it is. If we now look at the relation of an individual intellect to the world of forms, from the perspective of the world of forms, that is, from the side of the object, then we can say that for every part of the world of forms, i.e. for every form, there is an individual intellect particularly interested in it. 
There is, for instance, an individual intellect thinking about sameness in particular. And this individual intellect's thinking about sameness in particular makes this intellect the individual that it is. In other words, it individuates it. Now, Plotinus claims that each form is also an intellect, Aeneid 5.9, chapter 8, lines 1 through 4. And given our considerations so far, we are now in a position to explain the relation between the individual intellect that contemplates sameness in particular and the form sameness. They are identical. Accordingly, in this way, each form, being an individual intellect, contemplates itself. This example might give the impression that individual intellects share the following feature with the hypostasis intellect. Just as the hypostasis intellect contemplates itself, so does every individual intellect contemplate itself. The individual intellect sameness, for example, might be thought to think about sameness just as the hypostasis intellect thinks about the world of forms. This impression, however, would be mistaken. To see this, we have to further scrutinize the contemplative activity of an individual intellect, such as sameness. We know that the hypostasis intellect is identical with intellectual contemplation, or intellection. But if this is the case, then the intellect is essentially involved in the contemplative activity of each individual intellect, as every individual intellect essentially thinks intellectually. After all, this is what makes it an intellect. Hence, it would be wrong to think that the whole intellect is potentially in every th individual intellect, if we understand potentiality as an unrealized possibility. For the intellect as a whole is actively involved in the essential activity of each individual intellect. The intellect itself is, as we have seen, an activity, namely intellectual contemplation. Suppose for the sake of argument that the intellect were only potentially, in the sense given, in every individual intellect. If so, individual intellects would not think intellectually, and since their actual thinking is essential to them, they would not even exist. Hence, the contemplation of the individual intellect sameness, for example, necessarily involves uh, since it is intellectual thinking, the intellect as a whole, that is, the intellectual activity as a whole. And sameness alone would not be sufficient. Here we can see that there is a crucial difference between the whole intellect's contemplation and the contemplation of any of its parts, and we can see why the above impression is misleading. The whole intellect just contemplates itself as a whole. Its contemplation is self-sufficient in that it does not need anything apart from itself to contemplate itself. Each part, however, although also contemplating itself, essentially actively needs uh, the whole intellect to contemplate itself. For what it contemplates, for example, sameness, can only be understood as a part of the whole world of forms. I will add further details to the con uh, consideration of the contemplation of an individual intellect in a moment. For now, it is important to note that the active essential involvement of the intellect in the essential activity of each individual intellect provides the explanation for the Plotinian claim that the whole intellect is, as a whole, in each of its parts. Given this explanation, one might wonder how individual intellects differ from one another if, in each case, the intellect as a whole is involved. Are there indeed many individual intellects? Why is there not only one intellect? The answer, I believe, is as follows. It is a crucial characteristic of thinking that it possesses the capacity to focus on something or other. We saw in the last chapter that the world of forms is a complex thing. Intellectual thinking can, but need not, focus on any of the aspects of this complex thing. It can focus on the sameness of true reality, for example, or on its being. According to Plotinus, each part of the intellect 
focuses on that aspect of the world of forms with which it is identical. Sameness, for example, focuses on sameness. Being focuses on being, and so on. Although each intellect must contain, as we have seen, the whole intellect, because the whole intellect is nothing other than the activity of intellectual thinking, the focus of each individual intellect is different from the focus of every other individual intellect. The fact that the hypostasis intellect, by contrast to individual intellects, does not focus on anything in particular, is crucial for understanding its ontological priority. That is, for understanding Plotinus's claim that the intellect as a whole is a whole that is prior to its parts. The intellect is intellectual thinking, which does not, in itself, focus on anything in particular. Rather, its contemplation involves the world of forms quite generally, and thereby everything that is in the intellect, and that the world of forms is constitutive of its thinking. Now, each individual intellect is intellectually active, too. Insofar as it is intellectually active, each individual intellect is identical with the intellect. Since the whole intellectual contemplation, i.e. the intellect, is constitutive of the intellectual contemplation of each individual intellect, the whole intellect is as a whole in each of its parts. Unlike the intellect's intellectual activity, each individual intellect's intellectual activity is focused on precisely one aspect of the world of forms, namely on one or other particular form. This individuates each individual intellect, and thus makes each individual intellect the individual intellect it is. This is also what makes it a part that is posterior to the whole, because it is already focused. The focusing presupposes the whole intellect, because the intellect provides individual intellects both with the particular object of their contemplation and with their activity. The focusing thus not only explains how individual intellects get individuated, but also how the whole intellect is, as a whole, actually in each of its parts. Another riddling Plotinian claim we met was that all parts are already there in the whole. This is riddling in particular since we know that Plotinus thinks that parts are posterior to the whole. How can they be both, both posterior to the whole and parts in the whole? In the case of the intellect, we are now in a position to solve this puzzle. Intellectual thinking involves the five highest genera, and is thus complex. So it is clear that the parts must already somehow be in the whole. The crucial move to get clear about this, however, is the claim that the parts are not in the whole as parts. This move is made possible by the claim that what makes them parts is their focusing on that aspect of the world of forms that they are particularly interested in. The whole intellect, however, is the intellectual contemplation before its turning to particular aspects of itself. Accordingly, the parts are in the whole intellect, prior to individuation, but they are so not as parts. In other words, all individual intellects are in the whole intellect prior to individuation, and hence not as individuals. One might object to the claim that the intellect as a whole is ontologically prior to its parts in the following way. If the parts, as was argued above, are in the intellect, without being individuated, then they are in the intellect. This implies that they exist prior to their individuation. In fact, the latter claim is true, accord is true according to Plotinus. The intellect consists of its non-individuated parts, and it can obviously only do so if its parts exist. But this means, the argument concludes, that the intellect is not ontologically prior to its parts. For if this were the case, the intellect could exist independently of whether or not its parts exist. But as has been shown, this is not the case. Hence, the intellect is not ontologically prior to its parts. 
Instead, the intellect and its parts depend on one another for their existence. This would be a good objection if I understood ontological priority in an existential sense. However, this is not the case. Instead, I understand ontological priority in an essential sense, by which I mean x is ontologically prior to y precisely if x is what, is what it is independently of what y is, while y is dependent for what it is on what x is. Now, one might wonder whether the same problem recurs in this understanding of ontological priority. If the intellect is ontologically prior to its parts in this sense, then the following is true. The intellect is what it is independently of the essence of its parts, while the parts are, for their being what they are, dependent on what the intellect is as a whole. Given this, one might object that the intellect, according to Plotinus, consists of its non-individuated parts, and hence depends on them for what it is. Hence it seems the intellect cannot be ontologically prior to its parts. I agree that the intellect consists of its parts. Still, as an objection, this argument misses the target. For although the intellect consists of its parts, the parts that together make up the intellect as a whole are there prior to their individuation. I do not claim that the intellect is ontologically prior to its parts qua non-individuated, but rather only qua individuated. In other words, my claim is that the intellect is ontologically prior, in the essential sense, to individual intellects as individuals. And indeed, each individual intellect, as an individual, depends for what it is on the intellect as a whole. The reason for this is that each of them only becomes individuated through focusing. It is the focusing that constitutes each individual intellect as the individual intellect it is. The intellect as a whole, by contrast, is essentially independent of any focusing and thus of any individual intellect qua individual. Even if there were no individual intellects as individuals, the intellect would still be what it is. I think there is an even deeper Platonist point to this. Whenever we refer to a part or other, we have thereby already individuated it. Indeed, we have already distinguished this part from other parts, and from the whole. Accordingly, if we want to consider the whole as a whole, listing all of its parts, even if we declare what each part is, will not tell us what the whole is. Think of an analogy of the genus animal, whose definition does not explicitly contain human being or any uh, uh, other of its species. The definition of animal is independent of that of human being, but not vice versa. Hence, there is ontological priority in this sense of the whole to its parts. The sometimes bewildering claims about parts and wholes that we have now discussed can all be found in Ennead 6.2, chapter 20. There we read that the intellect as a whole is prior to its parts, that it contains all its parts, i.e. all individual intellects, that individual intellects are the parts of the hypostasis intellect, and that the whole intellect is, as a whole, in each of its parts. The hypostasis soul, individual souls, and their individuation. Let us now turn to the soul. Since the soul is the same kind of whole as the intellect, we will not be surprised to find that analogous claims must apply to the soul. That being the case, we will have to consider the following claims. The hypostasis soul is, as a whole, prior to its parts. It contains all its parts. Individual souls are the parts of the hypostasis soul. The whole soul is as a whole in each of its parts, that is, in each individual soul. It was argued that the hypostasis soul thinks in a way different 
from the hypostasis intellect, namely discursively. Both soul and intellect think in their own ways about the world of forms, but the soul, in contrast to the intellect, essentially also possesses a demiurgic function. Like the divine craftsman of the Timaeus, it wants to create a sensible world in such a way that it is a most excellent image of the world of forms. In order to be able to do so, the soul has to think about how to create a sensible world. This thinking is essential to the soul too. In chapter 2, I identified it with its practical thinking, that is, with divine providence. Thus, the soul essentially thinks discursively about, among other things, how to create a sensible world. Furthermore, as we saw in chapter 1, that divine providence, according to Platonists, not only cares for the arrangement of the general rules of creation, it does not, for example, only arrange the heavens without taking care of the sublunary world. Instead, it arranges everything down to its smallest detail. Thus, the soul's providential thinking must involve thinking about all of the parts of creation, all of the bodies that have to be created to make up a sensible world. To start with, let us consider an important fact about individual souls, namely that they care for individual bodies. Socrates' soul, for example, is particularly interested in the well-being of Socrates' body and will care for Socrates' body in a way that is distinct from its care for any other body. Similarly, the soul of the sun is particularly interested in the body of the sun, and will take great care to make sure that the sun moves in the right way. At Ennead 4.3, chapter 2, lines 5-10, through 10, Plotinus also considers the hypostasis soul, and compares it to individual souls. The hypostasis soul, unlike individual souls, he claims, does not care for any individual body in particular. Thus, there is no body that the hypostasis soul is particularly interested in. The soul thinks about the whole providence of a sensible world, and all its sensible bodies as a whole, without focusing on any aspect of this in particular. In this sense, the soul can be composed to the uh, compared to the hypostasis intellect, which also takes no particular interest in any of its aspects. A further comparison is in order here. The hypostasis soul, we claimed, is identical with its essential activity, and thus with discursive thinking. Since the content of this thinking is constitutive of the thinking and since the context, uh, content of this thinking involves the whole divine providence, we can see in what way the soul is discursive thinking as a, hypos a hypostasis. Divine providence is nothing other than the thinking about the excellent organization of a sensible world as a world whole with all of its parts. This being so, the soul is analogous in this respect to the intellect which is identical with its intellectual contemplation. This does not imply that the soul exclusively consists of providence. It also crucially contemplates the world of forms, and thus it also consists of theoretical thinking or contemplation, as we discussed in chapter 2. It will currently focus on, uh, I will currently focus on providence because I believe that we can explain how individual souls get individuated by means of this aspect of the soul's thinking. But if the soul's practical understanding cannot be divorced from its contemplation, then if the soul as providence is in each individual soul, as I am going to argue it is, the soul as contemplation will also be in each individual soul. The fact that the hypostasis soul does not care for any individual body in particular does not imply that the soul does not care for any body at all. Divine providence, as we saw, includes everything down to the smallest detail. Accordingly, all bodies are involved in the soul's plan for a sensible world. 
even the body of Socrates and the body of the sun, for example, are involved. In the sense in which the soul is divine providence, as described above, the soul is prior to its parts. This becomes clearer, I hope, if we turn to individual souls. Individual souls, like individual intellects, are focused on one or other particular aspect of the whole soul. Each individual soul is focused on one or other particular aspect of divine providence. It is the aspect of the body that it has to care for. To come back to our examples of Socrates and the sun, the soul of Socrates is particularly interested in the body of Socrates, and the soul of the sun in the body of the sun. If we now consider the care for these bodies as part of divine providence, we can qualify the claim that the soul of Socrates, for example, cares for its body in particular. Each body has a particular role to play in the whole of the providential arrangement of the sensible world. Each soul, in thinking about the role that its body has to play, thereby focuses on one particular aspect of the whole providential arrangement. When the soul of the sun, for example, thinks about how to move its body, then it does so because the body... Because the body of the sun has a certain function to fulfill in the whole providential arrangement of the sensible world. The soul of the sun is particularly interested in this function. It is not, however, particularly interested in the function that the body of Socrates has to fulfill, nor, for that matter, in the function of any other uh, body than its own. Thus, each individual soul thinks in particular about its role, and the role of its body in the whole providential arrangement of the sensible world. Focusing on a particular aspect of providence makes an individual soul an individual, and thus focused thinking makes an individual soul a part of the soul. Each individual soul essentially thinks discursively, as does the hypostasis soul. What is more, each individual soul focuses its thinking on the role that its body has to play in divine providence. Insofar as each individual soul thinks, it does not differ from the hypostasis soul. For the hypostasis soul, essentially, but not exclusively, is providential thinking. The individual soul differs from the hypostasis, however, in that it thinks about something in particular in that it focuses on and is particularly interested in one aspect of providence. Since the whole providential thinking is constitutive of the thinking of each individual soul, and since the hypostasis soul is the providential thinking, the soul as a whole is in each individual soul, that is, in each of its parts. The hypostasis soul, however, although being before its parts, also includes all parts in the following sense. The content of the thinking of each individual soul does not differ from the content of the thinking of the soul. Each soul thinks about the providential arrangement of the sensible world. The providential thinking, which is part of the hypostasis soul, includes everything that individual souls focus on, since what every individual soul thinks about is already there in the soul. This includes, in particular, what each individual soul focuses on. However, in the hypostasis soul as a whole, that is, prior to its parts, all these particular aspects are not focused on. For example, the providential thinking of the soul includes thinking about Socrates' body, along with all other bodies. In this sense, the soul of Socrates, being the part of soul which is thinking about Socrates' body, is also there in the soul. However, it is there prior to being individuated, since the aspect of the soul which concerns Socrates' body is not yet focused on. In this way, all individual souls, that is, all parts, are already in the whole soul. 
Yet the thinking as it is in the whole soul is not focused on anything in particular, and thus the individual soul, insofar as it is in the whole soul, is not individuated. It is in the whole soul, but not as individuated. This discussion shows how I would suggest that we understand the claims made at the beginning of our discussion of the soul. We have discussed how the hypostasis soul is as a whole prior to its parts, how it contains all its parts, how individual souls are the parts of the hypostasis soul, and how they get individuated, and how the whole soul is as a whole in each of its parts, that is, in each individual soul. The fact that thinking possesses the remarkable capacity to focus and thereby involves the whole in the specific way discussed is crucial for an understanding of these relations. By contrast to the hypostasis soul, individual souls are also active in the sensible world. In the next chapter, I shall, focus, I shall further defend the interpretation developed so far by arguing against views according to which the soul's primary, or even soul activity, occurs in the sensible world. I shall also attempt to explain in detail in what way the individual soul's activity in the intelligible world is prior to that in the sensible world, and how it relates to it.